Hi everyone, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Cameron Ogilvie. I'm one of the elders with Church of the City. So nine months ago today, actually, my son Seton was born. And, uh, and over the past nine months, people have not been slow to point out how much he looks like me. Uh, one of the best experiences, I'd say, was uh, with a neighbor of ours in our community. He's an Ethiopian man. And uh, so my son and I were taking a walk. I had him strapped in in front of me. And so he was facing out saw this gentleman from a distance and so we decided to walk over and and as we got closer to this man his his eyes just kind of lit up as he looked at the two of us and he pointed at us and in his broken english said wow same face same face in acts chapter 11 it said that the disciples of jesus were first called christians which means little christ same face let that reality sink in just a little bit. Does your life, does my life, bear such a striking resemblance to Jesus that people would say of us, same face? As we normally do, we're going to take a time to pause and just check in. Where, where are we at this morning? How are we feeling? And, uh, and I invite you to invite Jesus and the Spirit into this moment as we dive into this question of discipleship this morning. Let's do that together. All right, so we are in the middle of this vision series where we really are coming back to the core. Who are we as Church of the City? What's our identity? And so we've started working through those identities. Uh, Dave covered last week talking about family, how we're part of the family of God. And this week we're going to zone in on disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? So I'm going to define it for you now and then we're going to unpack this as we go throughout uh, disciples are learning to do like Jesus. Disciples are learning to do like Jesus. Let's break that down a little bit. Disciples are learning, meaning that this is a work in progress. When that work is complete, they will look like Jesus. A disciple will look like Jesus, but until then, we're just getting brief glimpses of the resemblance. Disciples are learning. They're also learning to do. And I think this is really important for the culture that we live in because sometimes learning can be detached a bit from doing. Like many people go to school to study things that they never actually use in their professional career. Or you may read about news, international news or otherwise, that uh, really has no bearing on your day-to-day -day life. The goal of a disciple is not education, it's transformation. Not just learning, but learning to do. Jesus' primary concern wasn't how 
much people knew about God or how well they knew the scriptures or even how often they attended synagogue. Jesus' primary concern was with whether people did the will of God. Here's a few quotes from Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Here's one that maybe connects with last week's. My mother and brothers, my family, are those who hear and do the word of God. Or how about this? You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's from John's Gospel. Now, maybe you're getting a little bit nervous, like we're, we're five minutes in and we're getting dangerously close to suggesting that the things that we do make us right with God, but, but that's not what Jesus is getting at at all. This isn't about doing things to get on God's good side. Have you ever um, been pulled over by a police officer who, when you rolled down the window, went on to praise you for your your cautious driving style and your, your willingness to obey the, the speed limits? Or have you ever gotten a, a glowing letter from, uh, from Canada Revenue Agency for filing your taxes on time and, and paying them in full? No, that's, that's silly. Like, we're, that's just doing what's expected of you. And Jesus confronts exactly this with his disciples at one point in time. He says, when you've done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. Nobody earns brownie points with God for doing what he's commanded. It's just our duty as disciples, as people who are learning to do like Jesus. So, what did Jesus do? And what did his disciples do that we should do likewise? So we're going to look in Mark's gospel this morning. Um, two things. We're really going to zone on two things that I think summarize what defined the lives of Jesus and his disciples and two ways, therefore, that we can learn to do like Jesus. Number one is proclaim the good news. And the second is to pull back for prayer. As we go through these two items, we're going to take some opportunity to reflect a couple of minutes. And so I just encourage you to keep that in mind. And as we're going through, think about, you know, where am I at in the process of learning to do like Jesus in these things? Okay. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to be in Mark's gospel, chapter one. If you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start reading at verse 15. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. These are some of the first words that Mark records Jesus saying, okay? Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the good news. Now, maybe you're hearing that and going, well, hold up a second. I thought the good news was that Jesus uh, died and rose again to save us from our sins. 
Well, and that's partially true. Actually, Spencer covered this a couple weeks ago. The gospel is, yes, it's partially about what Jesus does to save us, but more than that, the gospel is Jesus restoring and renewing all of creation, bringing in his kingdom. Think about it this way. Uh, when, when you or a relative of yours found out that they were pregnant, did they go around telling everyone, hey, nine months from now, I get to experience contractions and childbirth? No, they, they told people the good news. We're having a baby, a, a new life, a new reality is coming. You know, the, the grandparents start thinking about, oh, they get to change the diaper and they're going to buy all the, the toys and things like that and babysitting and, you know, mom and dad are thinking about oh, when, the, when the child walks and, uh, and feeding them food for the first time and, you know, all these, all these dreams of the, the new reality that they are about to enter into. And there's nine months of preparation all leading up to that climax, that childbirth, which is the birthplace of that new hopeful reality. And Jesus' cross and resurrection are exactly that in the message of the good news. They are the birthplace of the kingdom of God. It's a place where Jesus is in charge, where justice and love and mercy and grace, those are the rule of law. It's a place where those who were first end up coming in last, and the last come in first. It's a place where the least are the greatest, and that world, friends, is on our doorstep. Jesus has already won his crown. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and nothing is going to stop this baby from coming. Are you ready for that? And if not, oh, we better get ready and fast. Uh, Sam Albury puts it this way. We are all driving through life the wrong way, and we are about to be met with the rush hour of God's purposes coming in the opposite direction. This is why repentance is so core to the gospel of Jesus. We have to turn around. We have to learn to do like Jesus because the arrival of Jesus' kingdom is going to be a huge shock to the system. Disciples proclaim the good news over and over and over again, urgently reminding both ourselves and others of this new reality that is about to meet us so that we can stay awake and alert, repentant, and ready to do like Jesus. So here's our first break, time to reflect. Where are you at in learning to do like Jesus in this way? Uh, do you have regular rhythms in your life that are allowing you to proclaim this good news, both to yourselves and to others? And maybe when's the last time that you did share this good news with someone around you? Take a moment to reflect on that yourself or maybe confess it with those you're with. And uh, remember, there's no judgment if you are engaged in this process, if you are learning to do like Jesus. Let's take a moment to pause together.
Jesus prioritized proclaiming the good news to one group above all others. So we're going to look at that now. If you want to flip forward to Mark chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 15. While you're getting there, uh, I'll give you the backstory. So Jesus has just called a man named Levi to follow him. Levi uh, is a tax collector, really not a, uh, a, a good profession to be as a Jew. Tax collectors were essentially sleeping with the enemy. They, uh, they were working for Rome, the foreign occupier, and they were lining their pockets by cheating their own people. Not a good reputation to have. But Jesus calls Levi, and Levi decides to leave his tax booth and, and follow Jesus. And in response to that, Levi hosts a banquet, a big meal to celebrate. So this is where we jump into the story. While he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. What's Jesus saying? Well, to, to someone who thinks, you know, they're, they're doing pretty well on their own, uh, a message that Jesus has saved us from all of the wrong and the brokenness and the, the sin in our lives, it just doesn't sit very well. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. But if you know that you are no good on your own, that is really, really good news. Similarly, if, if you are healthy and wealthy, a, a message that there's a coming world where there's no pain and no poverty anymore, that just, that just doesn't strike you that much. But if, if you're poor and you're lame and, and you're blind, like that is really, really good news. And so this is exactly why Jesus prioritized proclaiming the good news to this back alley crowd. The good news was actually good news for them. People who know that they are needy make it to the top of Jesus' priority list. Which brings us to our second question today. Where do the poor, the sick, drug addicts, prostitutes, refugees, other oppressed visible minorities, where do these people make it on your priority list? Or is your, is your crowd made up of people who are doing okay, doing pretty good on their own? Take a moment to reflect on that. People who knew that they were needy 
made it to the top of Jesus' priority list. But there's maybe one more piece of nuance to add to that. And to find that, we're going to go to Mark chapter 6. So flip over to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start right at verse 1. Jesus has been preaching uh, around the countryside, and and now he's leaving where he has been preaching, and uh, the story is going to tell us where he goes from there. So Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He, Jesus, went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. If you are learning to do like Jesus, notice that Jesus could do nothing here. He healed a few sick people, but his neighbors, his relatives, and his old acquaintances were offended by him and his gospel. And so he marveled at that, but he moved on. This has really come to challenge my perspective on relational evangelism, this idea that we build relationships with people first so that we can share the good news with them second. I've been wrestling with this, and I just don't think that's the way Jesus did it. Jesus, in all these experiences, he shared his gospel with people first, and then he built relationships with those who received it second. Lots of people talk about how uh, they get turned off by Christians because we have a hidden agenda in our relationships. And they're right about one thing. We absolutely have an agenda. To to be a disciple of Jesus is to have an agenda because Jesus had one. The difference is, is that Jesus' agenda wasn't a hidden agenda. He was very upfront about his terms, his kingdom, his gospel. And so in our relationships with people, we need to be upfront about our allegiance to Jesus, our commitment to his agenda and his kingdom, and we need to allow people to decide if they want to relate with us on those terms or not. I'll share with you a a story from my own experience. My my wife, Sonia, and I um, had the privilege to get to know a a Muslim family um, a couple years ago, and we were open with them about our commitment to Jesus. We shared the good news with them, and, uh, and they would ask questions from time to time, and, uh, and so that was good. We got to a point, though, that the answers that we were giving to their questions just weren't satisfying, and it wasn't really going anywhere, and so we, we made the decision to pull back a little bit from that. Two days after we made that, that conscious decision, I get a call from the husband, and he tells me that he has had a vision of Jesus. 
So I go over to his house uh, the next day and hear this story, and this is how it goes. He's sitting in a room with a Muslim friend of his and a Muslim sheikh he knows, and they're, you know, talking about Islam, the question of Islam and Christianity. And apparently, I came into this vision. And, uh, and so I was then having a debate with his Muslim friend and, and the sheikh. And then another man comes in and his face is shining and bright and there's authority in the way that he walked and he talked. This is how my friend described it. And he comes and he puts his hand on my shoulder and, and points to my friend and goes, Cameron is right. Cameron is right. He says it twice and then it's done. My friend told me that he was, he was ready to convert. He was going to change his name. He was going to tell his family and he thought his family would join him and, uh, and, and follow Jesus as well. I thought the deal was sealed. And I'm sad to say that Maybe it was six months, eight months, maybe it was a year after he walked away from all of that. He started hanging out with some Muslim friends of his again who just convinced him that, you know, he was thinking about it a lot at that time. And so that's why he just had this, this dream. So what do you do when people are mired in unbelief? Do you uh, buckle down with your arsenal of apologetic arguments in order to convince them otherwise? Jesus proclaimed the good news to needy people who knew that they needed him. And if they didn't recognize and admit their need for him, Jesus would marvel at that, but he would move on. So third question, are you investing in any relationships right now that are really not open to the good news of Jesus? Maybe has the time come for you to, to marvel at that and move on? So in that story we just covered from Mark chapter 6, Mark doesn't actually record what Jesus said. Uh, Luke does, though. Jesus stood up in the synagogue in his hometown and he read these words from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's what we've been talking about so far today. Jesus proclaimed the good news to needy people who knew that they needed him. Who does Jesus say empowered him to proclaim this gospel? Who anointed him? 
and, and by extension, who is it who will empower us as we learn to do like Jesus to proclaim the good news of his kingdom as well? The Holy Spirit. And so what did Jesus do? What were his disciplines, his practices, which enabled him to be empowered by the Spirit? He didn't proclaim more. He didn't heal more. He didn't go to more places. He pulled back for prayer. Jump back with me, if you will, to Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. And we're going to read in, in verse 35 there, okay? Mark chapter 1, verse 35. This reads this. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, this is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And if you read the Gospels, you'll realize that this was a regular practice of Jesus. So you can imagine uh, the, the reaction from the disciples when they woke up in the morning. Peter is, you know, most likely the one who woke up first and, oh, Jesus is gone again, guys. And, and there's, no, uh, there's no message from him in our WhatsApp discipleship group chat. Oh, where did he go? Where would Jesus go? Yeah, so let's go, let's go check at the synagogue. No, he's not at the synagogue, and uh, is he at, maybe he's at the carpenter shop. No, nope, not at the carpenter shop. Hmm, and, uh, and the prostitutes aren't up at this hour, so he's probably not hanging up with them. Um, where could he be? It's very possible that hours went by before they found him. And what I love about all of this is that the one person in the world who could legitimately have a savior complex did not have a savior complex. Jesus knew that people needed him and he needed to pull back and pray. Why? And why go to the wild for that? Well, the, the wild is simple. You know, there's pull back all the distractions, strip those away. It's just you and the spirit and Satan. He's there too. And so solitude isn't an escape from the problems of the world. It's actually the place where spiritual battles are won or lost. When asked, what is the greatest work that we are called to as disciples? Abba Agathon, a, a fourth century monk, said this, I think there is no greater labor than that of prayer to God. For every time a man wants to pray, his enemies, the demons, want to prevent him, for they know that it is only by turning him from prayer that they can hinder his journey. Prayer is warfare to the last breath. Pulling back for prayer and solitude is, I think I've been realizing, is the area that I have been slowest to learn to do like Jesus. And it's only become more clear to me as I've been preparing for today and seeing that Jesus regularly withdrew to the wild for prayer in order to align his will with the will of his Father. Not my will, but yours be done. To be empowered by the Spirit to then do the will of God and then to return from the wild 
to proclaim the gospel to a world that is hostile to it. So, fourth question. Do you, like me, struggle with this? To take time and unplug, pull back, and pray? When's the last time that you stole away to the wild for prayer and solitude? Back in our tech series in February, Matt talked about a, a, a principle, a practice of unplugging for one hour a day, uh, one day a week, and one week a year. Is that, a, is that something that you're ready to commit to today, that you see value in, as Jesus did? And if you're already practicing something like that, what, how much does prayer make up a central focus of that time? This doesn't quite cut it, but as part of this service, we're going to take some time to be silent, to pray. Uh, a verse from Luke's gospel is going to come up on the screen in a moment, and I invite you to turn it over in your mind. And then just listen. Listen for what God might have for you, and maybe that is just silence. After waiting in that silence for a while, uh, I'll invite you to read with me the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. I've really come to appreciate this uh, as, as an amazing summary of all that Jesus lived for. He sums it up so well in this prayer, and I really do believe that he intended this prayer that he taught us to guide the way that we would pray. So let's take some time uh, in quiet, reflect on this passage and we'll come back together. Would you read with me the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. To close this morning, I'll, I'll read to you Paul's words to Titus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In Guelph as it is in heaven.